Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fire and Fury Podcast. I'm Jay Funds One, John Funderburg, and I am with my co-host, Jen Towsy. Jen, how you doing? I am great tonight. How about you, John? I'm doing fantastic. I was just watching the football game and put, put the kids to bed, and I'm ready to delve into this. Well, just to let everyone know out there, we are going to go through each page of the book and talk about and discuss it. So we don't know how many podcasts there's going to be. Each podcast, we're kind to, we don't know how in-depth the information is. It's kind of going to be a, call it seat of your pants, kind of, uh, we take it as it comes. But we are definitely going to go through each page. So if you don't want to read the book, but want to understand what it says and hear what it says and hear commentary about it, this is the podcast for you. And Jen and I decided to start with actually the author's note, because we kind of want to get an understanding of why the author did what he did and what his uh, motivations were. So Jen, do you want to start with the first paragraph of the author's note? Yeah, I can do that. Let's see. You ready? Yep. The reason to write this book could not be more obvious. With the inauguration of Donald Trump on January 20th, 2017, the United States entered the eye of the most extraordinary political storm since at least Watergate. As the day approached, I set out to tell the story in as contemporaneous a fashion as possible and to try to see life in the Trump White House through the eyes of the people closest to it. This was originally conceived as an account of the Trump administration's first 100 days that most traditional marker of a presidency. But events barreled on without natural pause for more than 200 days, the curtain coming down on the first act of Trump's presidency only with the appointment of retired General John Kelly as the chief of staff in late July and the exit of chief strategist Stephen Key Bannon three weeks later. The events I've described in these pages are based on conversations that took place over a period of 18 months with the president, with most members of his senior staff, some of whom have talked to me dozens of times and with many people who they in turn spoke to. The first interview occurred well before I could have imagined a Trump White House, much less a book about it, in late May 2016 at Trump's home in Beverly Hills, the then-candidate polishing off a pint of Haagen-Dazs vanilla as he happily and idly opined about a range of topics while his aides, Hope Hicks, Corey Lewandowski, and Jared Kushner, went in and out of the room. Conversations with members of the campaign's team continued through the Republican convention in Cleveland, when it was still hardly possible to conceive of Trump's election. They moved on to Trump Tower with with a voluble Steve Bannon before the election, when he still seemed like an entertaining oddity, and later after the election, when he seemed like a miracle worker. I want to stop there, and first of all, I want to say you you read very well. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Um, (laughs) the, the, The background to this is... So, so, so we're in an author's note, and mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to point out that he initially went into this program thinking that there was going to be a pause after the first hundred days, and there was no pause. And if and if we begin to relive everything that happened, there there's been there's been one crisis after another. It seems since the Trump campaign has since Trump has been in office, right? And I can. I can, if I were to look at how truthful this book is, what clues or how do you feel about the, from what you, I guess what I'm asking is from what you've already heard in the book, how do you feel about the revelations thereof and how truthful they could or could not be? Well, I think like personally that I'm not going to be surprised by much. I mean, the things we've already heard, those, um, kind of excerpts that have been coming out. I think some of them are surprising in how um, revelatory they are, maybe. But nothing about this White House surprises me anymore. 
And, and why so, is that? I just think because so like things that we could never have imagined happening. And and I think we had talked about this before, how before he was elected, people were like, oh, well, that would never happen. Or if he were to get elected, he'll have people around and that'll keep X, Y, and Z from happening. But those things have happened. And so, and, and I think just from knowing what I had seen of him before, like from The Apprentice and just tabloids and whatnot, he just seems kind of like an out there kind of person, like, you're, you know, and so it just, I don't know, but, but there's also that part of me that likes gossip and likes to know those kind of behind the scenes things. And so I think that's why I'm interested in this book, because I think we are going to see things that if they are true, kind of give it, um, like a, a more like detailed perspective to things that we already thought was, was kind of nuts, but to kind of have that like verification of it. I don't know. It's kind of, it, it's, it intrigues me. Whenever I evaluate anything, I always look at the be- before, during and after. And before the before Trump was very much like the Trump we're seeing today in New York. While he was in office, I, I saw a lot of interviews and stories about how the shenanigans that he went through that 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 reporters were covering him in New York where he would say what he would do mm-hmm. and it's, it's it's a very it paints a, it paints a consistent picture i can totally see how the way he ran his campaign which was very top heavy this person that wrote the book was allowed into the white house over over 20 times i believe had the kind of um, past where he was just kind of like whisked right on through he was allowed mm-hmm. to he was allowed to talk and to interact and that's the kind of that was the kind of white house that trump had where as long as there were things happening he was okay with it and i would be i would be very surprised if someone doesn't write a book from him being in mar-a-lago because from the reports that we've heard down there where when things are happening he's just basically talking information right there in front of everybody um so I, i'm looking for the book from mar-a-lago to be next to be honest with you but if he had ran a tight ship or if he had not acted in the ways before that were that were so flamboyant and extra over extrovert, then mm-hmm. I would I would have a problem with it. But this book seems to flow with his personality and it seems to really coincide right. with, with with the rest of his life. So and uh, um so let's continue with the editor's note from where'd you stop? You stopped off at okay. Shortly, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take it from here. Um, where he seemed like a miracle worker. Yeah. So. Shortly after, yeah. Shortly after January twentieth, I took up something like a semi-permanent seat on a couch in the West Wing. Since then, I have conducted more than two hundred interviews. When the Trump administration has made hostility to the press a virtual policy, it has also been more open to the media than any White House in recent memory, which is true. In the mm-hmm. beginning, I have sought a level of formal access to this White House, something of a fly-on-the-wall status. The president himself encouraged this idea, but given the many fiefdoms in the White House, in the Trump White House, that came onto open conflict from the first days of the administration, there seemed no one person able to make this happen. Equally, there was no one to say, go away. Hence, I became a constant interloper than an invited guest, something quite close to an actual fly on the wall, having accepted no rules, nor having made any promises about what I might or might not write. I have a question for you. Have you seen the show 
on HBO. As the name is escaping me right now, the political show um, with Kevin Spacey. Oh, House of Cards. House. Of, have you seen House of Cards? Yes. Does this guy not remind you of the of the writer on House of Cards? Yes. <laughs> Because it was the same thing where it was like it he was, was just there. Nobody he had was... actually determined what his role yes. was. So he was writing everything. And then afterwards they got so pissed at him. But it's like you let him in there. Exactly. This seems this is art imitating life, life imitating it's art. It's insane how like that show got to be so much more like it was like telling the future. Exactly. It's crazy. And, and he he was in, in, in the House of Cards, of course, the character was really close to the wife, really close to the wife. Right. As a matter <laughs> of fact, the character was with the wife when the mother died and had a relationship with the wife. I'm not yes. going, I'm not saying that's happening, but it's interesting how that character had unlimited access. No one, no one gave him any parameters. Because you, because you remember, he didn't travel with the press pool. He traveled with the president. Right. Sometimes he would go back to the press pool just to be with him, but he didn't have to go back there with him. Right. Because he was, he had this extra access. He was like special. And this is the same. This guy was had this extra access. Was, anyway, so we have life imitating art. So uh, many of the accounts of what has happened in the Trump White House are in conflict with one another. Many in Trumpian fashion are badly untrue. Those conflicts and those looseness with the truth, if not with reality itself, are the elemental elemental thread of the book. Sometimes I have let layers off offer their versions in turn, allowing the reader to judge them. In other instances, I have, through a consistency in accounts and through sources I have come to trust, select, settle on a version of events I believe to be true. This paragraph is important because this paragraph is often mentioned in the press as mm -hmm. not being a book that is a number-by-number number retelling, but a formulation of events as he saw it. And the press is, some of the press is trying to form it as if he is he is adding in layers it's not there but he's actually saying that it was so chaotic in this house that different people had different stories right. so i had to i let i let the reader decide which is true which which true which is it i agree and i think that's been one of the pushbacks from the white house is that well there's different versions of events but like that doesn't make them untrue that just means there's different people's point of view and I mean, like we see that, like in the Bible, there's three different versions I was saying, of I was the birth the of Christ. You know, yes, I was thinking the same thing. How in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them saw the different version, like differently of what Jesus right. did. Right, but they're telling the same story. Like it's just different parts and different points of view. So that doesn't mean that they're all wrong. It's just they're just being different people are going to have different experiences and that's what's going to shape the way they tell their story so. okay this is going to be um this is more of a once again this is not a straight political podcast we have a lot of pop culture references because i like pop culture and have you watched the show called um black mirror no i've been wanting to it's very it sounds really good but i haven't watched it yet uh, it's it's i'm having mixed feelings about it yeah but but they have one one episode where basically seasons one, th I think seasons one through three, they have different writers for season four, but seasons one, two, three, I think were too, 
they were too political against technology, so mm-hmm. they created stories that kind of made fun of technology. But but season four is more of a is is more of is more engaging to me. But mm-hmm. there's this one story in season two where, and I can tell you this because it's, I'm not because it has nothing to do with the story. It's just a setup. Right. Where they actually put a memory chip inside of your head, and you had a remote control, and you were able to recall everything you saw from your eyes. So your eyes were were basically a a DVR recorder, and you could go back, you know, from everything from the moment you had the implant. You could you could you could flash it on your TV and and rewatch the memories that you saw for that day, that week, or that month for for the whole time you've had it. I don't like that. Huh? I was well, interesting <laughs> the story they, they they appear from it, but I was thinking that if they had this memory chip, <laughs> I would love to see the what people saw in the White House during this time. Seriously, <laughs> to see this guy, to see first of all Steve Bannon, who who I heard was very aggressively negative towards people in the White House who had who cursed all the time mm-hmm. and and had a slight drinking problem. I don't know, and I also like to see Trump kind of wandering around the White House in his his robe <laughs> eating. <laughs> Cheeseburgers in Hagadas. So, um, just is like, I, I mean, like Saturday Night Live couldn't come up with that. What they say, Trump. It's just so out there. Comics, exactly. It's so out there. It's it's, it's almost it's it's uh, <laughs> wow. And and I don't know. This is just a personal. Now, this is my personal opinion. The body language of Milena is like, get away from me, you, you, whatever. Yes, yes. Her body language is so, so off-putting towards him. There, there's no love, no affection. No. She is just once like she's like a, she's almost like Chris Christie was <laughs> behind Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so, so by the way, whoever's listening to this podcast, I am a Democrat. Gentiles is a Democrat, but if you're a conservative and you want to participate, we welcome your participation. Yes, I would love to have a conservative on and to to give your to give your view. And the more you disagree with us, the better because that makes for a better discussion. So just reach us, reach me through Twitter at jfunds one, or reach Gentiles through Twitter. What's your Twitter, Gentiles? Just Gentiles. Yeah, at Jen Towsy. It's really exciting. Uh-huh. All you need is a Skype and a computer, and we'll be happy to have you join our podcast anytime. It's an open invitation for all conservatives because we are trying to deal with what's actually happening. We're not trying to, one thing that Jen and I have made the decision to do is not trying to make anything up. Right. We are seeing what's happening and talking about it. Not, not in a disrespectful way, but we have to record what's happening <laughs> for future generations. <laughs> That's how I feel anyway. <laughs> So I'm going to finish up with some of my sources spoke to me in a so-called deep background, a convention of contemporary political books that allows for a disembodied description of events provided by an unnamed witness to them. I have also relied on off-the-record interviews, allowing a source to provide a direct quote with the understanding that it was not for attribution. Other sources spoke to me with the understanding that the material in the interviews would not become public until the book came out. Finally, some sources spoke forthrightly on the record. At the same time, it was worth noting some of the journalistic conundrums that I faced when dealing with the Trump administration. Many of them 
the result of the White House absence of official procedures and lack of experience of, of, the, of its principles. These challenges have included dealing with off the record or deep background material that was later casually put on the record. Sources who provided accounts and confidence and subsequently shared them widely as through liberated in their first utterances. I wanna stop here for a second. And I wanna say that from the very, as a follower of politics and a follower of procedure, follower of administrations, I wanna say that Obama had a, ran a very tight ship. Mm -hmm. And the looseness of the Trump administration, I knew were going to have effects that are unintended consequences. And I believe this is one of those unintended consequences. I think so too. I mean, even like the Bush White House, I think they had more leaks and stuff than Obama, but it still was such a more like top-down operation and procedures were followed. You just didn't see this kind of level of stuff like coming out from like all these different directions. And, you know, this is just like, this is new territory. I mean, from the very beginning is what is what is why he won the campaign. There's no respect for order, or no respect for procedure. Right. They're just like, who cares? This is what we're going to get done. Mm -hmm. Because in the real estate business, how you did it, you you everything is very top down in the military. In other words, like Trump could like make a phone call and get the plywood there, you know, mm -hmm. or something was happening. He'd make one phone call. This isn't like that in the government. You there there are layers and there's red tape. Right. He can't just speak it and in, into existence. So I was when, so observing the Trump White House transition, and when Chris Christie, when Chris Christie were was replaced, and I think he was happy he was replaced. I, I knew so. that I knew that I said there's going to be some unintended consequences, and I don't know what they are, but it's going to be major. Mm -hmm. Because even when the Trump, even when Obama administration was tight, he still the small mistakes he made were were, I think, were where it was it was leaked out that Rahm Emanuel had had was at odds with Obama on certain issues. Mm -hmm. He didn't want he, you know the small things were made huge in the media. I quoted the two and said, if Obama ran a tight ship and that got out, I can only imagine what's going to happen with this administration. Right, I had that same thought. What were your first thoughts when? You were seeing the transition during during the first thirty days. What was your impression? It just felt so like disjointed. I mean, it really, honestly, felt like no one expected him to win, and as such, they had not made preparations. Which, in my mind, regardless of what you think your chances are, you should already have your transition team locked down, and they need to be proceeding as if you've already won. So that as soon as it, that inauguration is over, all those you know um, systems are in place and those gears start moving. And you could just see that didn't happen with this. Like everything felt so last minute, and like they weren't even quite sure who was going to be in charge of different things. And you know, it was all these very last minute decisions, and you could just it just felt so um, disorganized and chaotic and. So it was just a little unnerving because, I mean, I was going through this grieving process of, like, Obama's not president anymore, which obviously we knew that was coming, and then, like, Hillary didn't get elected. 
And and it wasn't even that she lost. It's how she lost and to whom she lost that made it so painful. And to see this person who I did not feel had any type of respect for the office of the president, for the Constitution, for our system of laws, for our system of government, for the United States in general, to be stepping into this place was already hard for me. But then to feel like they didn't even care enough to do the job well was just this other layer of frustration. Because, like, you know, I've had presidents before that I didn't vote for, but I still felt confident that they they had respect for the office. And I still had that confidence that their team was going to do the right thing in terms of process and procedure, you know, and I did not have any comfort with this transition. What I didn't expect was the, and I was talking with this with a lot of my conservative friends, who we talk in confidence, I didn't expect the backlash from the Obama presidency to be so, so forceful. It's yeah. almost as if middle America, and take that as you will, kind of said, we are going to put in office a person who best expressed how we felt during the Obama years. Yeah. Regard, yeah, regardless of qualifications, regardless of we don't like what happened, this person is our voice, this person represents who I feel, and through hell or high water, that's who we want to put in office. Yeah, I felt very spiteful. And I, I'm also upset with Hillary Clinton, by the way, very. And the reason why is because it reminded me of, of that scripture in the Bible or that story in the Bible where Jacob and Esau, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Mm-hmm. I feel like if, if you know you're going to run, if you, okay, if I know I'm going to run for president, I'm not going to have things in my life that could blow up, that could blow me up that I don't need to have. Like right. the email, the email controversy I'm not going to debate right or wrong or missing. That's that's a whole other debate. So if you want to talk about that, we, you know, whoever is, we'll talk about it another time. But the whole thing was discovered by, do you know that was discovered by a foreign reporter? Yeah. It's just, he recognized that the email wasn't going to the, to the White House or to the State Department like it should be. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned it. And from then, that, that created a whole controversy. And I'm upset with her because had she had just did things the right way, because, you know, in government, they always have classes on how to do things the right way. Right. You know, as, as on my job, I have to have everything go through my job email when I talk with my clients. Mm-hmm. And so she, I can't. So she knew that. And so for her to risk her entire presidency and she risked the country by yep. by uh, by doing something so asinine. If, if the email controversy wasn't there, she would have won hands down because it wouldn't have been lying. Hillary would have been on the emails. The press wouldn't have felt the need to have false equivalency by by hyping up her emails to equivalent to equip to, to to seem fair but to, to what Trump was doing. Right. They wouldn't have had that, they wouldn't have had that controversy. You know? Um, because so she I'm, knew I'm, when she was Secretary of State. She knew she had presidential ambitions. Like everybody knew that. Yes. This didn't she didn't just decide like a couple months before. That's been on yes, her radar did. for years. 
Yes. You know, so shut down the foundation. Yep. Shut down. You should have a, a sterile, clean life. Yep. <laughs> it should be two emails. I'm president of secretary of state and I'm resigning secretary of state. It yep. shouldn't be all this other stuff in between. You know, and I feel that she played too fast and footloose with the rules. And I think it bit everybody in the behind. Yeah. Because, well, and I think to your point, it, I think in probably a lot of people's minds, well, those are just such minor things. It shouldn't have mattered. But in that election, everything mattered. And you don't get to decide what's important or not. The voters get to decide. So. And that and those emails, because I have I have a lot of conservative friends, and mm-hmm. that is the linchpin that they, they are so hung up fall on. It. on. Oh my gosh, I mean, these stupid emails. And when I and when I say conservative friends, I'm not talking about <laughs> the ones that are farmers or you know you know I'm not talking about the ones that are uneducated. Right. I'm not saying they're bad people. They're great people. I'm not saying that. Hear what I'm saying, people out there. I'm talking about conservatives that are highly educated, that understand everything is happening in the world, that are that are really fluid on current events, and that's all they talk about. Their emails, as if and it's it's like this spot in their brain that they fall back on. And I'm saying, like, why? I mean, we, we can have Russia, Gary, you know, bomb us or or, or take matter. over take over our take over our political system, and they'll say, "Well, Hillary needs to be investigated for her emails." <laughs> I've heard people say like she needs to go to prison over it, and I'm like, really? I don't know. It just I seems, mean, we, yeah, we have George Bush. George Bush, we didn't prosecute him for torture, right? Right. You know? I mean, we didn't for, prosecute. Yeah, we didn't prosecute Reagan for Iran Contra, you know. Right. Or lying to America for weapons of mass destruction, you know, where we started a whole war with millions of thousands of Americans got killed. We didn't prosecute him for that or investigate him for that. I mean, Dick Cheney, any none of them got big no bid fifty billion dollar contracts to the firm that he's aboard of. We didn't oh do gosh. any of those investigations. No, but her email. I'm just like it's. Jen, when we all get to heaven, we have to ask God, why was this email a deep spirit? <laughs> I just, I just honestly, honestly, <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, and the reason why it's frustrating is because it's not only it's educated people that are informed that are talking about this not so right. it's not it's, it's 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 like the whole conservative culture is locked down on emails and i had to remind if all of you conservatives out there understand this is how i feel i feel like you guys are in charge of the of the judiciary you're in charge of congress congress has the right to investigate anything they want to at any time with unlimited resources so you tried to use that against benghazi and nothing happened so if you want to investigate the emails you can do it yourself you don't have to wait till the fbi does it congress right. can do it and nothing has come up come of it but it's a talking point that they utilize to gather the base up and it worked so let's finish the two paragraphs. You want to finish? Yeah, I'll finish. I close my window out. Okay. Well, let's see. 
A frequent inattention. Okay. A frequent inattention to setting any parameters on the use of a conversation, the source's views being so well known and widely shared that it would be risable not to credit them. And the almost samizat, what is that word? Samizat sharing? Our gobsmacked retelling of otherwise private and deep background conversations. And everywhere in the story is the president's own constant, tireless, and uncontrolled voice, public and private, shared by others on a daily basis, sometimes virtually as he utters it. For whatever reason, almost everyone I contacted, senior members of the White House staff as well as dedicated observers of it, shared large large amounts of time with me and went to great effort to help shed light on the unique nature of life inside the Trump White House. In the end, what I witness and what this book is about is a group of people who have struggled, each in their own way, to come to terms with the meaning of working for Donald Trump. I owe them an enormous debt. I love that where he says, like, the uncontrolled voice. Constant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's so, what's so... Go ahead. I mean, he just... Trump himself just put so much stuff out there that to, for him to claim that I didn't say that or I didn't say this, it's just hard to believe because he's constantly saying so much about everything so, and so nothing. Again, yeah, that goes to my theory that the book is is concurrent with his tweets. It's not mm-hmm. like is it, it's not like we have this person by day, different person by night. We have the same person in every media outlet saying the same thing. Right. So uh, let's go to the prologue. So now we're going to the prologue. It says prologue L's and Bennett. Prologue L's and Bennett. I guess that's Roger L's. Yeah, Roger L's. Yeah. So you want to tell everybody who Roger L's is? So Roger L's. I'm sorry, I moved away. Roger L's was the guy who founded Fox News, right? Yes. Um, Big media mogul. And I think right before he's talking about this. This happening was right after, um, what was her name, Gretchen Carlson? Was it Gretchen Carlson that kind of took him out with talking about sexual harassment? So he had been like the head of Fox News, and he was kind of forced to retire early after all these um, accusations of like sexual harassment and misconduct came out about him. Well, I want to go. I want to go into that a little bit further. Go ahead. And and so 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 you guys know. So so listeners know. I am totally against sexual harassment to the nth degree and i believe everyone that commits it should resign immediately democrat or republican mm-hmm. and <laughs> my daughters i told my daughters to my wife it's going to be a problem this happens in your life because i'm going to deal with it so right. i'm very harsh i'm very upset about that roger ailes not only had, was sexual harassment he was spying on people he, he had a whole atmosphere where you couldn't even complain. Like, like he had HR wired into himself. Roger, you know what? Roger Ailes reminds me. Have you seen that? Another pop culture reference. Have you seen that show um, on Netflix about the guy in Columbia? Uh, um, what's, the, what's that big drug smoking company? Oh, Narcos. Nar- have you seen Narcos? Yes. So you remember Pablo have you Escobar. The, yeah. Have you seen the third season? No. Third season is way better than the first two. Oh, okay. Right? Good to oh, know. Third season, you, you, Matt, third season is so good. You, you don't even need to watch the first two, to be honest with you. But the third season, they showed after he died how Columbia, how they were able to operate in Columbia. And there was a guy that was really good at, as soon as you flew into Columbia, he had the cab drivers, the people that checked you into the hotel, the people that checked into the airport, all wired into a central 
telephone system. So they were able to follow you no matter where you went the moment you landed in Columbia. That's crazy. And that reminds me of Roger Ailes, where he had everybody into a central phone system where the moment you tried to complain about sexual harassment, you were you were followed, your media was followed, you were followed, you your whole life was in, in control, but you had Fox News. Mm-hmm. So that's that that's that reminds me of. By the way, you have to watch the third season of Narcos. It's, it crushed the first two. I mean, it totally crushes it. I will. I'm, I'm almost through season two. It's so... See, you might just drop. Season two, it's, it's, it's so much better that I would say just stop watching season two. Just watch okay. season three. Season two is not my favorite. It's kind of draggy. Exactly. It, it, you know how it's going to end anyway. So I'm just like... <laughs> but season three has so much drama and tension. And they have, unlike season two, one and two, they have actual good guys that you kind of root for. Oh, good to know. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, so, right. So, so I'm gonna start with the reading. The evening began at six thirty, but Steve Bannon, suddenly among the world's most powerful men, and now less and less mindful of time constraints, was late. <laughs> 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 I guess Bannon was doing his own thing. Bannon had Bannon had promised to come to this small diner dinner. Arranged by mutual friends in a Greenwich Village townhouse near Roger Ailes. Greenwich Village is a very rich place. The former mm-hmm. head of Fox News and the most significant figure in the right-wing media and Bannon's sometime mentor. The next day, January 4th, 2017, a little more than two weeks before the inauguration of his friend Donald Trump as the 45th president, Ailes would be heading to Palm Beach into a forced but hoped temporary retirement. Snow was threatening, and for a while, the dinner appeared doubtful. The 76-year-old Ailes, with a long history of leg and hip problems, was barely walking and coming into Manhattan with his wife, Beth, from their upstate home on the Hudson. Was wary of slippery streets, which is smart, but Ailes was eager to see Bannon, Bannon's aide, Alexandria Preet, kept texting steady updates on Bannon's progress, extracted himself from Trump Tower. As a small group waited for Bannon's, it was L's evening, quite as dumbfounded by his old friend Donald Trump's victory as most everyone else. L's <laughs> provided the gathering with something of a mini seminar on the randomness and absurdities of politics. Before launching Fox News in 1996, L's have been for 30 years among the leading political operatives in the Republican Party. As surprised as he was by this election, he could yet make a case for a straight line from Nixon to Trump. He just wasn't sure he said that Trump himself at various times a Republican, Independent, and Democrat could make the case. Still, he thought he knew Trump as well as anyone did and was eager to offer his help. He was also eager to get back into the right-wing media game and he energetically described some of the possibilities for coming up with billions or so dollars he thought he would need for a new cable network. That guy. Huh. So Els, Roger Els has passed away, didn't he? Oh, I think he did just die. Maybe, yeah, yeah like just yeah. Yeah, I think recently, you're right. yeah. Very recently. So he was ready to start a network with Manning from 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 this election, a billion dollar another news network. Well, I think they didn't they try and like trot it out a little on Facebook, like Trump News or something. Remember that. Yeah, they tried. I think they had little fits and starts, but um, yeah. it hasn't really caught on like I thought. Like 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 I thought they they thought it would. Yeah. So you want to continue there from there? Yes. 
Both men, both men, Hales and Bannon, fancy themselves <laughs> particular students of history. Both autodidact. Wait, both auto. Autodidacts. Didacts. Partial to universal field theories. They saw this in a charismatic sense. They had a personal relationship with history as well as with Donald Trump. Now, however reluctantly, Ailes understood that, at least for the moment, he was passing the right-wing torch to Bannon. It was a torch that burned bright with ironies. Ailes Fox News, with its $1.5 billion in annual profits, had dominated Republican politics for two decades. Now Bannon's Breitbart News, with its mere $1.5 million in annual profits, was claiming that role. For 30 years, Ailes, until recently the single most powerful person in conservative politics, had humored and tolerated Donald Trump. But in the end, Bannon and Breitbart had elected him. Six months before, when a Trump victory still seemed out of the realm of the possible, Ailes, accused of sexual harassment, was cashiered from Fox News in a move engineered by the liberal sons of conservative 85-year-old Rupert Murdoch, the controlling shareholder of Fox News and the most powerful media owner of the age. Ailes' downfall was cause for much liberal celebration. The greatest conservative bugbear in modern politics had been felled by the new social norm. Then Trump, hardly three months later, accused of vastly more louche and abusive behavior, was elected president. I want to come in here for a second. Is... Is the writer of this a Ailes fan? Because he's really kind of, to me, I'm getting the impression of, maybe I'm wrong, he's kind of sugarcoating over all the allegations that Ailes had. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he's a fan, but I think he definitely holds him in some level of esteem. You it know? seems that way, yeah. Yeah. Because what Trump did was not, what he said wasn't, I mean, Ailes was accused of years of systematic, you know, right. craziness. So... At, at the at the very least, it was equal. It wasn't, you know. Right. He said more. He said accused of vastly. Loosh. Words vastly loose. I wouldn't say vastly more loose. I think, but you're right. I think it's probably on par. And then the word abusive behavior, which 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 flies into what Ailes actually did, was abuse the system where the people couldn't even they couldn't even complain to HR because he had HR. You know. He was HR. Exactly. <laughs> and they paid you know what millions of dollars they paid in in in, in paying people off. <laughs> oh, there's no telling. It's crazy. So sorry, interrupt. Go ahead. No, I'm with you. But I I also wonder. Don't you feel like people kind of have like for older people who are accused of wrongdoing? Like there's some like people almost feel bad for them because they're so old. Like I wonder if that's part of it too. Because he was like old and sickly like if maybe he was trying to take it easy on him i don't know but i'm with it you he's definitely like sugarcoating it for some reason yeah els els is coming out the better part of this prologue <laughs> yeah els enjoyed many things about trump his salesmanship his showmanship his gossip he admired trump's sixth sense for the public marketplace or at least the relentlessness relentlessness and indefatigability of his ceaseless attempts to win it over he liked trump's game he liked Trump's impact and his shamelessness. He just keeps going, Ailes had marveled to a friend after the first debate with Hillary Clinton. You hit Donald along the head and he keeps going. He doesn't even know he's been hit. But Ailes was convinced that Trump had no political beliefs or backbone. The fact that Trump had become the ultimate avatar of Fox's angry common man was another sign that we were living in an upside-down world. That is an amen. The joke was on somebody and Ailes thought it might be on him. I wonder, like, 
is he like I wonder where he's getting these insights about Roger Ailes like I'm interested to know is this just from his observation or was this from like conversations they had well this is well another thing is is now now, not only is he has insights on Roger Ailes but whenever he discusses Roger Ailes he's not he's saying it in as if Roger Ailes he respects he respects Ailes a whole Mm -hmm. lot he does he He's saying it from a view. He's almost treating Els as if he is a statesman. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Trump is the is the courtyard fool. Yeah, that's a really good observation. That's exactly what it is. So I, I can tell you, still Els have been observing politic. Uh, still Els have been observing politicians for decades, and in his long career, he had witnessed just about every type and style and oddity and confection. And cravenness and mania. Operatives like himself and now like Bannon work with all kinds. It was an ultimate symbiotic and codependent relationship. Politicians were frontmen in a complex organizational effort. Operatives knew the game, and so did most candidates and office holders. But Els was pretty sure Trump did not. <laughs> Trump was undisciplined. He had no capacity for any game plan. He could not be part of any organization, nor was he likely to subscribe to any program or principle. In Ailes view, he was a rebel without a cause. He was simply Donald, as though nothing more needs to be said. <laughs> In early August, less than a month after Ailes had been ousted from Fox News, Trump asked his old friend to take over the management of his calamitous campaign. Ailes, knowing Trump, I'm going to stop here. I remember when Bannon took over. Yeah. And Bennett is responsible for electing this guy because he was on a down trend. Uh, Paul Manafort had just been uh, downgraded. He uh-huh. was the the tapes had just about I think this this where the tapes just about came out, and he really did not connect or he wasn't connecting with the alt right crowd as well as to till, till after Bannon got there. Uh huh. So Bannon was really responsible for shoring up enough of the American base that believed that subscribed to this to this way of thinking that came out to vote for him. Yeah. So I just want to add there, put that there. Uh, uh, we gonna say something? Well, I just I'm agreeing with you, and I think that when Bannon got that job, I think a lot of us was like, well, that campaign's over because Bannon is so far right. He's so um, just out there that he can only bring the campaign down. And I was so wrong because, I mean, he, I mean, and it makes sense because Breitbart has a specific market and within that market, it is very popular and very trusted. And he knew his market and he tapped into it and he earned his money, you know? I had to unfriend a, a, a long time friend of mine on Facebook. And he's not even white, he's like Mexican. Mm-hmm. But he, <laughs> and he married a African American lady, but he is a total Breitbart guy. And Breitbart had the ability to tap into, whenever an African American did a crime, they would blast it on their paper. Mm-hmm. And this guy would blast every African American that committed a crime on his Facebook page time after time after time as if to make a point I don't know what point he was trying to make but Breitbart has a loyal following but they have a definite agenda absolutely 
and I like you would thought the campaign was going to go down in flames because I had no idea America would glom onto that. And I was right. surprised that it did. Yeah. I thought they would be repulsed by it. As did I. So where did I leave off? Okay. In early August, less than a month after Ailes had been ousted from Fox News, Trump asked his old friend to take over management of his columnist campaign. Ailes, knowing Trump's dis- dis- disinclination to take advice or even listen to it, turned him down. This was this was the job Bannon took a week later. After Trump's victory, hold up, are they saying that Ailes was supposed to take over his management? Yeah, well, Trump asked him and he said no. So then they offered it to Bannon. Wow, I wonder, how do you, how do you think that would have turned out? I don't know. I don't think... I mean, it's hard to speculate because, again, like, I mean, Ailes was good at his job for a reason. Like, he knew the market, but he also was so tainted at that point and just completely different generation and everything that I think he would have driven in a different, like, probably a more um, traditional direction. So I don't know. Yeah. Ailes is more establishment and Trump was more anti-establishment. Right. So that decision right there really changed the course of our nation, man. It did. History shall write it. So Ailes turned it down and Bannon took it over. After Trump's victory, Ailes seemed to balance regret that he had not seized a chance to run his friend's campaign with with incredulity that Trump's offer had turned out to be the ultimate opportunity. Trump's rise to power, Ailes understood, was the improbable triumph for many things that Ailes and Fox News represented. After all, Ailes was perhaps the most person perhaps the person most responsible for unleashing the angry man currents of Trump's victory. He had invented the right wing media that delighted in Trump's character. I kinda wanna take take um umbers to what he's saying. Ailes mm-hmm. Ailes created the conservative media, but he didn't create the angry white Mail, right. I think that tr- Fox News had moderated enough where Breitbart really spoke to the angry white male more, more so. Yeah, I think so too. And I think that I think that Bannon saw in Trump that he could form something. He could form a mouthpiece that spoke to his people. Whereas Ailes didn't see that because Ailes was more establishment. The reason why Ailes didn't see Trump as being viable is because he knew that the establishment wouldn't accept him. Right. So I don't think Ailes should be reluctant because this wasn't really an opportunity for him because Ailes was not willing to his his time had passed. Ailes reminds me of, yeah. of that great football coach who 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 won games in his day, but when he tries to come back, the game has changed. And I think the game had changed on him. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So after okay, um, Ailes, who was a member of the of, of the close circle of friends and advisors Trump frequently called, found himself hoping he would get more time with the new president once he and Beth moved to Palm Beach. He knew Trump planned to make regular trips to Mar-a-Lago. Makes me sick. Down the road from Ailes' new home. Still, though, Ailes was well aware that in politics, winning changes everything. The winner is the winner. He couldn't quite get his head around the improbable and bizarre fact that his friend Donald Trump was now president of the United States. I kind of want to end there for this podcast because we kind of cover a lot of information. Mm -hmm. 
So, but the revelations that we have now that we didn't know before was that, well, some people probably knew is that Els turned down the job and Bannon accepted it. Mm-hmm. We also found we also found out that the writer, the author, really had respect for Roger Ailes. Yeah, and, he does. <laughs> and is basically holding Ailes as a statesman. And Donald Trump is this is being portrayed early in this book as the courtyard jester. Yeah. <laughs> It's like um, those movies, what do you call them, like the Ugly Duckling movies, where like the uh-huh. popular people find like the like the nerdy girl that doesn't have any friends that they can kind of turn into what they want her to be. Exactly. It's that kind of story. And I have to, like, the thing about the whole, like, Bannon, um, t- like, t- taking that job and, like, what hinged on that. I just think about, like, I'm, like, obsessed with the musical Hamilton. And... They talk so much about how, like, the world will never be the same from this, like, this one person in his life coming to America. And then he ended up, like, writing our financial system, you know? And so it's, like, these things that might seem insignificant at the time really do have the power to, like, change the course of history. And I think... Oh, so true. Yes, yeah. And I think that's one of these things that, like you said, we're going to look back in that moment of, like, the what-ifs of if Ailes had taken over. And with that one choice of making Bannon in charge of that campaign at that point in the election, in the campaign, and what an impact that had. Well, we had to give Trump credit for choosing Bannon. I mean, that, I mean, give him credit. I mean, you know, absolutely. Kind of like, yeah, I mean, he he chose the. I think he's the only person in America that could have that could have done that. Right. Nobody else. I mean, can you imagine any one of those other like guys or people who are running for the Republican um, nomination? They none of they wouldn't have touched Bannon with a ten foot pole. No. And, and get away with it. I mean, it, no. it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And so you have to give Trump credit for not only choosing Bannon, but choosing Corey Lewandowski, oh my gosh. who was a who was a little Bannon to mm-hmm. get him to to where Bannon could take over. It's it's true. I mean, just like all these people that like, and like their individual parts, we look at them and we were like, how is that person? Like, why are they there? And how, but when you look at all of them together. It was like this perfect mix of, like exactly what he needed. And once again, it it, it, it draws me back to why I'm upset with Hillary is that she she allowed she allowed this to happen through her foolishness. Mm-hmm. I mean the 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 effects of his presidency presidency will be felt for decades with his appointment of all these judges, which scares the living daylights out of me. Um, it's it's terrifying the EPA stuff. You, you know, this year was the year that more deaths happened in in American coal mines this year mm-hmm. because you know of lax regulations. That's, <laughs> I know. I mean, we could have a whole podcast on this whole like myth of like the coal worker. Like, if you really care about coal miners, is sending them back like into a pit of death? Like, it's it's amazing it, how it's I don't mind boggling. The only thing I can, and, and, and I hope people don't take this the wrong way, but the only other time in history that I can look at, it's recently, is what happened in Germany. I'm not saying that we're not saying anything. I'm just saying, but you, you look at how, from the, from, the, from the standpoint of one person changing a country's direction mm-hmm. socially, 
That's all I'm saying. Absolutely. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not talking about. I'm not comparing the present to Nazi. I'm saying the only the only example I can look at is a country that was changed the direction socially, and how did the people allow it to happen? And and I have, I have researched it, and they were like, did you know that in Germany there were so, certain Jews that were rich that that were for Hitler because he because he changed the it was business he, he would say it was mm-hmm. for business right. so they were they were looking at their economic interests and they didn't realize that their economic interests weren't weren't going to trump the social interest that was happening in the country at the time right you know and I feel like that's happening now is that our economic interest is trumping what's happening to our country socially and socially we are not respected all around the world anymore we have I mean, there are so many ramifications for happening. This is our first podcast on the prologue. We're going to have one. Uh, we're going to go through this whole book, and we hope you stay with us and share it. Any, any last words you want to say, Jen? No, this has been so much fun, and I'm just really excited to keep going through this book. I think it's just really interesting. I think it's probably one of the more interesting things that's come out about the Trump presidency. It's not... You know, like some of the stuff is so scandalous or whatnot, but this is just interesting. And I think it's going to be fun to go through it. What's your impression, before we go, what's your impression on the writer so far? So far, um, just from a technical standpoint, he's like crazy with the commas and his word choice is a little much for me. But in general, so far, I'm interested. Like he's got me interested. I'll keep reading. I like the way that he seems to really be a fly on the wall. He is. Yes. He is not. He hasn't inserted himself yet into the story. Right. Which is very tempting because this this he knew he knew this would be a bestseller. Mm-hmm. So it would be easy to say I was here, I did this, I did that. We are actually seeing this from the viewpoint of a fly. Yep. And so I, you have to take that into accord. That's pretty admirable that he is dissolving into the background and he's actually telling a story which to me makes him more believable Uh huh. because so far it doesn't feel like he's saying like you should think about it this way it's just he's so far he's really just like putting it out there on the table precisely so so, so my impression is one that he is he is he likes Roger Ailes which speaks to whatever mm-hmm. right <laughs> and but he's humble enough to tell a story that he I think he realized that that this is an important piece of work and he made an effort to just tell the story yeah so I think far so, anyway. too. so far I don't know how you know how it's going to pan out okay so we'll close this out once again you can contact me on twitter at jfunds1 and you can contact jen at jen Towsy. the our our link will be in the bio of the podcast and we'll see you again um hopefully we haven't we haven't developed a schedule yet but we're going to come out frequently to finish the book and we'll see you then sounds great thanks john